16. We've turned a new chapter here in our text in, in John. And this should be a familiar section for you where Jesus states that he is the vine, verse 1. And he says it again in verse 5, I am the vine. And he adds to it, you are the branches. This section here in John chapter 15 reminds me a bit of John chapter 10 where Jesus said he is the door to the sheepfold and he's also the good shepherd. Now, obviously these are statements that are known as figures of speech, metaphors, if you will. They convey great meaning by the way of illustration. But we have to stop here as we look at this particular text in John chapter 15 to make sure that we're very careful in reading this so that we understand it in the way it was intended to be. When you interpret a parable or a metaphor or a story of this type and nature that is used as an illustration, they're intended to convey doctrine and truth by the way of illustration and therefore when we interpret it to understand it you have to be careful not to push it too far it actually is illustrating a truth and a reality it isn't the truth and reality is an illustration of it and so I like to say when you <clears throat> interpret a metaphor don't make it stand on all fours if you will it's a, it is, after all, an illustration. So, we have to be careful not to read into it too much. We're looking for the meaning of the author. Sometimes it, it's explained explicitly in the text, and it will be a late, later on to some degree, so that's helpful. But the main explanation should come from the clear teaching in God's Word. We call it the didactic teaching. So we need to have some sort of <clears throat> safeguards when you read an illustration or a metaphor like this. You want to look in the immediate context and, and to read it. Read it in the Gospel of John. Read it in the other Gospels. Read it within the context of the New Testament and certainly the Old Testament. This is why, by the way, some, and I'll do this some degree today, why we often go look at other texts and even in the Old Testament to uh, compare and contrast and look at what we would call cross-references. In this metaphor, as we look for the meaning of what, it, what Christ is intending to communicate to his church, the idea here that I grab, at least in the first eight verses, is, is quite significant, is this, is this idea of abiding in me, as Jesus would say, or abide in Christ, as I might say. He calls for his people to abide in him. It's repeated. Note how often it's repeated as I read through just the first eight verses this morning. Let's read John 15, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us a hearing of your word and a heeding of it today. May it nourish and feed those who desire to abide in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I hope as I read here, you took special notice as to how often this phrase, abide in me, is repeated, depending on how you look at it and how you count it, at least five times, and maybe a sixth one here in verse 2, where it says, every branch in me, that, that is someone that is abiding in Christ. Nevertheless, this phrase, abide in me, is certainly emphasized, as you notice here in this text. In verse 4, the statement, abide in me, is a command. And remember, those who love Christ, as Jesus has already previously explained in chapter 14, obey his commandments. This is his command, that you would indeed abide in him. As we talked about before in chapter 14, those that are truly regenerate, that is truly saved, They've had a heart change, if you will, and a, a change of their affections, a change of their attitudes, and it ultimately affects how they act as well. It is expressed by their obedience, John 14 and verse 15. Jesus makes this command then to abide in him, but he also gives the ability to do it. It is through the regenerate heart. As Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. And that's the idea here. It is a command, but Christ gives the ability to fulfill that command. This idea of abiding in him, and we'll get to that in days to come, is also expressed in in, in the way in which you would love Christ. Look down to verse 9. 
As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. And it's just a different way of expressing this abide in me. Abide in my love then specifically. And how is that expressed? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Christ did this in perfection. He obeyed all And fulfilled all righteousness. This command then is given for a number of reasons. Certainly one for the Christian to remind them. That they are to abide or remain in Christ. It is an easy tendency for all like and here's this other illustration. All of us have like sheep you know wandered away if you will. And so here is the command and the reminder to remain in Christ. The word for abide in the Greek means to remain. It means to stay. It means to reside. And that's the illustration that Christ is giving here. He's calling his disciples specifically to remain in him, to abide with him, or we might say to commune with Christ, to fellowship with him. Abiding and remaining in communion with Christ is a spiritual reality. It's intangible though, and in many ways it's really kind of abstract. So what does it mean to abide and to remain in him? Well, this is why Jesus provides this illustration, this metaphor of the vine, to take that which is abstract and make it a little bit more concrete in our thinking. A physical illustration to communicate a spiritual truth. That's what's going on. So as we begin our thoughts on this metaphor... There are at least four things that we need to be familiar with. The vine itself, the vine dresser, the branches as they're mentioned here, and what it means to bear fruit. Now, each of these could be a sermon in and of themselves, and uh, I did think about that, but uh, for sake of time, I'm, I, was, I worked through here, and after I had about 20 pages of notes or more, I decided, well, we'll just break this up in two. So this is part one. If you want to hear the rest of it, come back next week. And I hope I can get through part one. Uh, Nevertheless, we'll talk mostly this morning about the concept of the vine and the vine dresser, what it means to abide in Christ, the vine and the vine dresser. Notice verse one, Jesus tells us, What the vine is to illustrate. I am the true vine, he says in verse 1. This I am, it should cause you to think about the other I am's that Jesus has made in relationship to something else. There are a total of seven specific ones in John. They're intentional in the way it's orchestrated here. Jesus said, if you remember, I am the bread of life. 
in John 6. He said, I am the light of the world in John 8. And in John 10, there's two of them. I already mentioned them. The do- he says, I am the doer. And then I also am the good shepherd in John 10. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's number 7 in our text. The last I am mentioned, I am the true vine. We've mentioned this before. We've been through it six times already. But the I am conveys the idea of an expression of divinity. So it is a statement of his divinity to say I am. And then this um, concept here of the, in this case, the true vine. Now the vine in their day would have been incredibly common. It is a fixture of their culture. The fruit of the vine, grapes, it was an essential part of their life in the first century in this area. They would have been able to harvest it and drink fresh, sweet juice. We don't think much of it, but we have so many options as to beverages in our culture and world. They would have been highly limited and here was something naturally sweet and flavorable that they were able to make sweet juice and drink. They could make jellies and jams and store them in that regard for a long way. It could ferment itself and be used to cleanse the water that they drank and remove the bacteria from it. Normally they would mix the, the naturally fermented wine with at least three parts or more of water to be able to uh, drink it uh, and remove some of the bacteria. They would also allow it to continue to um, ferment, if you will, and change into vinegar, another useful uh, thing in their uh, culture. So it was very common then for them to understand and know about vines and the use of vines and and, uh, grape, the fruit of the vine, the grape, and so forth. It was so common that the... uh, they would often um, use this vine figure as uh, various types of symbolism and so forth. You can find it on the coins of the Maccabees, for example. But one place that's interesting and might actually be related directly to Jesus' use of this illustration. I'm sure he used it because it was something common they knew about for sure. But this vine, the grapevine, was also inscribed quite notably... On the temple, Josephus, writing in the first century, says, describing the temple entrance doors, wrote, they were adorned with embroidered veils with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven. And over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine with its branches hanging down from a great height. The largest and fine workmanship of of which was surprising sight to the spectators to see what vast materials there were and what great skill and workmanship there was. In the in the um, Mishnah, which is essentially um, a com- Jewish commentary, if you will, 
They, was, they said a golden vine stood over the entrance to the sanctuary, trained over the posts, and whosoever gave a leaf, a berry, or a cluster as a freewill offering, he brought it and the priest hung it thereon. It was very notable, is the point. Inscribed on the temple, and they all knew it. It's a beautiful artwork, and such that folks would actually even hang things on, on it and, and around it and so forth uh, as a free will offering to God. They, they knew it very well. If you remember, chapter 14 ends with, well, let's arise and go from here. And of course, we have a couple more chapters of instruction that's given. We're not certain exactly what is going on, but you could imagine perhaps to some degree that there is this idea that here they are in the upper room, Jesus is teaching, and right at this point, they rise and they go up. Perhaps they walked from the upper room in, down into the Kidron Valley, across the Mount of Olives, and there they could see this golden vine, the, nat, the national emblem of Israel on the very front door of the temple. Don't know that for sure, certainly in their mind, and certainly they would have remembered this emblem that is on their most holy place. And here, Jesus makes this emphatic statement, and he simply says, I am the vine. It was essential to their economy, to their culture, and it was even integrated into their worship. And Jesus makes a statement and says, I am the vine. But beyond that, the first statement, though, he qualifies it and he adds this word, true. Not only the vine, but I'm the true vine. Our first impression of that might be true as contrasted with false. And that wouldn't be wrong, necessarily. That would be a correct statement. Jesus is the true, contrasted with the false. But I don't think that actually goes far enough. For him to say that he is the, the true vine, he's the true vine in the sense that he is the antitype to the type, to all the Old Testament that pointed to the reality that is Jesus Christ. He is the substance, if you will, to which the symbols addressed. He is truth in the sense of reality. And all of these worshipers would have looked at the vine on the temple and he says, I am the true vine. I am what this is all pointing to. He's already done that to some degree, use that convention before. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse 9, specifically, he says about the light, 1-9, I am the true light. There were other lights that came forward, but who were they all pointing to? They were pointing to that one who was true, and it is Jesus Christ who is the true light. In John chapter 6, talking with the Pharisees about Moses who gave them bread. And what is his response to him? He says, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. 
Yeah, this manna given to them was a pointer to that which would sustain them. That is, Jesus Christ. He's not just any light. He's not any bread. He isn't just any vine. He is the reality to which all of the symbols pointed. In Hebrews chapter 8, this preacher in Hebrews expands on this to a greater degree. I'll just read it for you. He is a minister speaking of Christ in the holy places, Hebrews 8, 2, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. This is explained a little further on in chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 24. All of this that had gone before is simply a copy, if you will, a symbol, if you will, of that which is true, that which is the reality, that it which is Jesus Christ. He says, I am. He is the true vine, not a copy. He really is the substance of life itself, of light itself, of bread, of the vine. In the Old Testament, you can read about the vine quite a bit. You can find it detailed in Psalm 80. We may look at that in a bit. Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15 and 19, among other places. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, which they would have been familiar with the Old Testament, I think not only... Is there a pointing to the symbol that they were familiar with? But also the reality that those symbols, and particular Israel, was characterized by failure. D.A. Carson remarks, the most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure, that is, he's talking about under the figure of a vine, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Now, now, in contrast to such failure, Jesus claims, I am the true vine, the one to whom Israel pointed, and the one that brings forth good fruit. Jesus has already, in principle, superseded the, the temple, the Jewish feasts, Moses, various holy sites, and here he supersedes Israel itself as the very locus of the people of God. God planted, if you will, in that imagery, a vine in Israel. And the result was failure after failure after failure after failure. And here is one that comes 
a true son, a true vine, and one who succeeds and fulfills all that is required of him. Jesus simply puts it this way, I am the true vine. Secondly, let's note the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine, and in our text, he states that my father is then the vine dresser. We can abide in Jesus Christ and fulfill that command because, number one, he is the true vine. And number two, his father is the vine dresser. This word translated vine dresser is a word, a general word for farmer. Here it's used in in this analogy as someone, if you can imagine, who has functional oversight of this vineyard. One who oversees, one who plans, one who directs those things that are to be accomplished. Those things that need to be accomplished are done according to the vine dresser's plan. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as the vine dresser. And here I invite you to turn to this Psalm 80 that I alluded to before. You may want to see it. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is really a prayer of repentance by God's people. They acknowledge that God is, in this analogy, the vine dresser who cares for, oversees, and supersedes this creation, this vine. So this vineyard analogy is is used. In this psalm, Psalm 80, this is... um, most likely a penitent response after the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722. They They were God's plant, if you will, planted vineyard, both the northern and the southern kingdom. And in 722, the northern kingdom was completely wiped out. And so here is a penitent psalm of prayer, and we'll pick up at verse 7. In the text when he moves to use this vine dresser illustration. And the repentance is this. Restore us, O God of hosts. Verse 7. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and shoots to the river. Verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. The the idea is that this idea of repentance is they they are confessing their, their sin than to receive the blessings of God. And that's the call in verse 14. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. 
They are also, that is Israel, identified as the sons of God. And that's the imagery there. They have burned it with